0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty. Welcome to the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is David Eagleman, neuroscientist, internationally best-selling author, co-founder of two venture-backed companies, Neosensory, as well as BrainCheck. He's also the writer and presenter of the international PBS series, The Brain with David Eagleman, as well as the author of the companion book, The Brain, The Story of You. He has over 120 academic publications, as well as several best-selling books. Today, we're going to have a conversation that covers a lot of ground, but really areas in which David is recognized as an expert, as well as a discussion about time, sensation, free will, and a variety of other topics. So thanks for being with us today. I hope you enjoy. David, thank you for being with me. Let me just tell the audience that you and I have been friends for some time, and uh we're just going to engage in a little conversation here. But you know, you're know you such a, an incredible individual in terms of your background in neuroscience and your deep interests. Obviously, you've published several best-selling textbooks. You've been, obviously, the voice of the brain on PBS, if you will. And you have a company called Neurosensory. Uh, but you're obviously- Neurosensory. Oh, I'm sorry. What did I say? Neurosensory?
1: Neurosensory, right.
0: Oh, that's my company. I'm yeah. sorry to play. <laughs> Uh, Neo-sensor, I'm sorry. Anyway, you you do have this incredible broad interest. Actually, one of the things that I know about you is you have an interest in time.
1: That's right. Yeah, actually, so when I was a child, when I was eight years old, I fell off of uh, the roof of a house that was under construction, and it seemed to take a very long time, the fall, And when I got to high school, I calculated that it was only, you know, 0.6 seconds. And I was really struck by that. And and my whole life, uh, my whole rest of my adult life, I was struck by this weird distortion of time that happens when you're in a life-threatening situation. And so I ended up devoting uh, some fraction of my neuroscience career to studying these issues about time perception, how the brain constructs time.
0: Well, maybe you could talk about that because I think everyone has had this experience where, you know in a life threatening situation time really slows down and and if you're talking to somebody who's not particularly interesting it really slows down <laughs>
1: Yeah, just the opposite, actually. So I became a neuroscientist and I was running experiments in my lab, but I got very interested in this issue about time. And so I started by doing a survey online and I collected hundreds of reports from people who said that time seemed to go in slow motion when they were in a car accident or in a gunfight or in a motorcycle accident, things like that. And so I really started wondering how to study this, and I looked in the literature, and it turns out no one had ever actually studied this problem before. And it's obvious why, it's because you can't put people in life-threatening situations. But I worked on how I could really, really scare people enough to give them a time distortion. So you know, I brought my whole lab to the amusement park, and we tried all the scariest rides and so on, and, and none of that actually worked to induce time distortion but I found something eventually called SCAD diving, suspended air device, where you essentially you drop from 150 feet in free fall backwards and you're caught in a net below going 70 miles an hour. And this it turns out was scary enough to induce this sense of time distortion where it feels like the whole thing took longer. So what I did is I got approval from my school to do this and it took me eight months to get the approval, but I finally got it and the way it worked is I would drop participants from this 150-foot thing, and uh, I would have them then retrospectively on a stopwatch estimate using their memory. For you know, start the watch the moment you remember being dropped, and then stop it the moment you remember hitting the net. And it was very distorted compared to the control, where I had them watch other people and then reproduce that on a stopwatch. You know, to remember other people dropping, which seems much shorter. So. I was able to induce it, but the question was, is time actually running in slow motion when you are scared for your life like this? So I built a device that strapped to people's wrists and it flashed information at them in a certain way so that I could actually see, I could determine if people were seeing in slow motion or not. And I'll skip some of the details unless we want to drill into them, but it turns out you actually don't see in slow motion during a life-threatening event. And this is how he came to realize that the whole thing is about memory. It's all about retrospection. It's all about saying, what just happened? What just happened? And when you think about what just happened, you've you, you've laid down so many memories during a scary event that it seems to have taken longer because your brain makes an estimate of how long an event lasted the way it does that is it sort of looks at how much memory it has but if you remember okay the hood crumpled and the rearview mirror fell off and the other driver was screaming and you know you have all these memories of things then your brain makes an estimate said well okay that must have taken five seconds when in fact it took one second that kind of thing
0: And of course, the opposite is that when you're having a very enjoyable time, of course, it seems that an hour has passed in seconds or minutes. And what is the difference then?
1: Yeah, uh, when you are having an enjoyable time, you are not consulting your watch in the moment. And so suddenly you think, oh, my God, I cannot believe this visit is already over. But here's the important part. In retrospect, it's exactly the opposite than it is going in the forward direction. By which I mean, if you're having a great time, suddenly you feel like, oh my gosh, time flew. But in retrospect, you have lots of memories of that. So it seems much longer. So compare a a boring weekend at home where you don't do anything to a super exciting weekend when you go on a traveling, you know, you go somewhere and you camp out with your friends and that sort of thing. When you go back to work on Monday the exciting weekend seems to have lasted forever in the sense that you think, wow, it's been a long time since I was back here at work last Friday. But a boring weekend, you think, oh my gosh, I was just back here. So it's exactly the opposite when you're looking back on time as when you're moving forward in time. So another example of this is when you're moving forward in time through a boring event, it seems to last forever. So when you're sitting on an international plane flight, you cannot imagine how long it's going to take for these 15 hours to pass. But when you get off the plane, you haven't laid down any new memories on the plane, and when you think back on it, it just seems like you instantly got from your city to that city. And um, and so the 15-hour plane flight seems kind of like it took no time.
0: So are, are there neural correlates of this that you can actually track?
1: So in the case of judging how long something took, it's all about how much memory you've laid down. That's really all the brain can ever do when it says, Hey, so for example, if I said, Hey, Jim, how long has it been since I last saw you at that uh, coffee shop in Menlo Park? The way you answer that question, unconsciously, of course, is by looking at all the footage that you have in the sense of, okay, let's see, this happened and that happened, and all, you know, several weeks worth of stuff passed. Okay, great, it's been some weeks. So we can look at issues of memory, and that, of course, has been done in neuroscience for a long time. But what's interesting is when it comes to Time estimates of, let's say, a fraction of a second or uh, maybe a few seconds, that's actually done in a different way in the brain. That has to do with how much activity the brain has in general. So what I mean is, let's say I'm just flashing some pictures on the screen, and then I flash a, a new picture that's, that's uh, you know, totally different, or I scare you, or I do something different. Your brain has a lot more activity with the new thing, and so the new thing seems to have lasted longer. Let's say I flash pictures for half a second. Let's say I flash the same picture of a, of a can of soda, and I flash the picture, and then I flash it again, and then I flash it again. Your brain has what's called repetition suppression, where it says, "Oh, okay, there's a can of soda. Okay, yeah, I got it. Okay, I got it, I got it. And it spends less and less energy each time you flash it. And as a result, it seems to actually last less time. An example of this is the stopped clock illusion, where you glance at a clock on the wall, you know, the old-fashioned kind with the second hand, and it seems like the clock is frozen for just a moment, and then it starts ticking along. What's happening is when your eyes first land on it, it's new, it's soaking up the information, and so everything seems to take longer, but after it gets in the rhythm, it says, okay, yeah, I got this, I got this, and it's spending less time for each tick of the clock.
0: Let me ask you a question then. We know that we receive immense amounts of uh, sensory information every second. What is it? Six to 10, whatever. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, megabyte or <laughs> whatever. It's, uh, I, I don't what know that. how much we, I don't know. How much oh, uh, see, well, yeah. yeah, there are a couple books. But apparently the reality is you can only process out of that six to 10 million, 50 to 100 uh, millibytes per second, I think it is. Which means that you know 99.99% of the information occurs at a subconscious level, and you can only attend to a very small portion. In terms of the time paradox, if you want to call it that, do you believe you can train yourself to overcome these
1: different perceptions of time? The only way to do it, I think, is to seek novelty and to force your brain to lay down memories. So so there are a few ways to do it. One of them is to challenge yourself and put yourself in novel situations, and then your brain lays down new memories. For example, if you you know, travel around to new cities and new countries, you have to pay attention because you don't know where the store is and where your hotel is and what the name of the street is and so on. So you have to pay attention. You're laying down memories about new things, and so everything seems to have lasted longer. That's one way to do it. The challenge, especially during the last couple of years of lockdown, have been that we've all been in the same four walls. And by the way, this is why time has seemed so screwed up to everybody, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all locked in our houses and, and not going anywhere because our memories are very tied to spatial location. And when you're in this same spatial location all the time, it's hard to distinguish memories from one another. And that's why everybody started saying, I don't know what day of the week it is anymore, and I don't know how long it's been since I last talked to you. Has it been three weeks or three months? That kind of thing.
0: You know, that's interesting because, and certainly that's true, but what about people, though, who uh, are in these environments that really are not significantly perceptually changing. And what comes to mind is the example of an Eskimo, right? In a white environment all the time. How does that work, do you think, in terms of their perception of time, or is it necessary to sort of need time, if you will?
1: Yeah, so my assumption, knowing nothing about Eskimos really, my assumption is that they have seasonality and they have different things that they do, as in, okay, here's, you know, here's this holiday season, and here's, you know, okay, now my wife is telling me to go do this and my children are telling me that, and and my colleagues over there are making me build my igloo over here. So I assume there's change going on all the time in an Eskimo life. But yes, I think if you are a jet setter who's constantly traveling to different cities and countries, it will seem as though you lived longer than if you're just hanging out. Uh, in the Alaskan wilds or, uh, you know, living out somewhere rural in, in Texas or something, and you feel like, you know, you never get off your ranch, I think life seems longer when you're laying down more memories.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's uh, interesting. And, and so in some ways, this may or may not correlate. What we perceive as, let's say, a picture of something, as an example, if we're driving along, We are making a huge number of assumptions that are processed to make it seem as though the picture is constant, but it's in fact not. Would you agree with that?
1: Um, Let me make sure I know what you mean. So, if I understand what you're getting at, this is vision in general, which is that you're not actually seeing the outside world. And of course, as we know, there's no in the outside world and all these things. Instead, everything is an internal model. It's all generated internally based on a little bit of data coming in through your eyes. And so, you know, as you know, of course, the in the visual system at the back of the head, there's all kinds of activity, and that's what seeing is about. But only 5% of that activity actually comes from the eyes, and all the rest is feedback activity. And of course, you can have full, rich visual experience with your eyes closed, which is dreaming, which we do every night. So you don't even need your eyes at all. So the whole thing is just this bizarre, you know, situation. Here's the analogy I came up with recently for it, which is, so as you know, of course, you only have you know, high-resolution vision right in the center of your visual field, and the resolution falls off quickly as you move away from the center. But why do we feel as though everything is in focus? It's because wherever I'm interested, I cast my gaze, and I put my high-resolution parts of my retina on that point, and I say, oh yeah, great, there's that, there's that, there's that. And the analogy I came up with was it's just like what I'm doing with my cell phone when I'm taking a panorama shot. I'm pointing my cell phone around me, let's say in a big circle, and it remembers what it saw at every spot. And that's essentially what's going on with my brain. I cast my eyes over here, then I cast it there, and I there, and there. And it collects up and says, OK, let's see, that was there, that was there, that was there. And so it's putting together this panorama shot based on all these little samplings of of the scene.
0: Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people don't appreciate that because they think or we are fooled to think that we see everything as we're driving along when, in fact, we actually have a very limited view and our memories construct what we think is reality.
1: Yeah. Oh, exactly. You know what? something that I've been thinking about recently is, you know how sometimes you misperceive something. Like the other day, there was, um, I don't know, some big bag lying on the floor. And I thought probably for 500 milliseconds, I thought, oh, there's my dog. And then I realized, oh, that's not my dog. It's a bag. But I think we have these all the time and we forget how often we do that. But if you can put yourself in that first 500 millisecond mistake, it's very instructive because it tells you, Okay, I'm getting some data that there's a blob in the corner over there, and I am 100% sure that that is my dog. For just a moment, you think that. And I think it's instructive to realize, wow, it's, I, I really truly was seeing my dog, given just the lousy little bumpy blobby data over there. No,
0: I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, it's funny, I, I saw uh, a, a picture of a woman who had a hairstyle and a, um, what's it called, one of those plastic things over their hair, but, and her head was bent forward, and it looked like a Sesame Street character, not this woman, <laughs> and I looked at it, and I go, wow, that is weird. And then, uh, you know, after a few seconds, like, oh, shit, that, I see what that actually is. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's right. But, you know, the sad thing is, and I know you have an interest in science and the law, is the reality of uh, these types of mistakes that lead to people getting convicted of crimes they didn't commit.
1: Oh, that's—those int- kind of mistakes, that's interesting. Yeah, well, eyewitness testimony. Yeah, exactly. Um, this happens all the time for actually a series of complicated reasons where— for example, a woman gets raped, and she thinks I am going to remember this man's face for the you know for the rest of my life. But I'm, I'm specifically going to remember this man's face for the for the lineup and make sure that this guy never walks free. And then she gets to the lineup, and there's these different faces, and she thinks I think it's number five, and she picks him. And you know, a guy can go to jail on this stuff. This happens every day in the legal system. One case. A woman that I met, her name is Jennifer Thompson. She was raped. She, at the lineup, picked a man named Ronald Cotton. And um, and Ronald Cotton went to jail for uh, for 12 years. And what happened is he was in jail and he heard about the O.J. Simpson case and he, he was listening to the news and he learned about this thing called DNA testing. And so he called his lawyer and said, hey, can I get DNA tested? They had some sperm from the rape kit uh, from the time that she was raped. And it turns out that's how he was exonerated. It turns out he was not guilty of, of the rape, as as he had asserted the entire time. He said it was not me. So what happened is Jennifer Thompson, feeling you know having been raped and having said to all her friends, "I will never feel you know guilt over anything that that I've done here," suddenly felt, "Oh my God! I put I put a man in jail for 12 years who was innocent." And so she decided she was going to contact him. And her friend said, gosh, don't do it. You know, he, he might be really angry that you just took away 12 <laughs> years of, of his life. But she contacted him. And it turns out he's a great guy. And he said, look, I've already forgiven you about this. And they ended up writing a, a book about it. His name is Ronald Cotton. So they, they titled the book, Picking Cotton. And that they go around together and give talks about this about eyewitness testimony and and just this issue that you can feel one hundred percent certain that you remember what the person looked like, but uh, memory of course, is not like a video recorder it's all you can ever do is try to reconstruct something as best you can, and that's always influenced by what you've seen since and um well, and before yeah and before yeah
0: yeah I, I mean uh you know this is where. Even racial biases come in, of course, right? And uh, again, you know, we've had these horrible, horrible cases of people being convicted wrongly and and people, again, with absolute certainty.
1: Yeah, exactly. And just to be clear about what we mean by racism here, this is the other race effect, which is to say whatever race you are, your recognition just isn't that good in terms of seeing other people that— that you don't know well. So for example, if you and I had to identify an Eskimo who had, you know, uh, broken into our house and we'd seen him, we, we would be terrible at it. But it's not racism as we talk about in other ways. It's just the fact that we are not Eskimos ourselves and we don't, we don't become experts at the details of an Eskimo face. And so, and this happens with every, in the same way that the Eskimo would not be able to distinguish you from another big guy who looks kind of like you.
0: Well, this is the
1: statement. They all look alike to me, right? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, and so to the Eskimo, you, yeah, you and me look look alike. Exactly. <laughs>
0: uh, well, uh, you know that brings up another point, though, because there is though, and I, I don't want to veer off into racism per se, but I have a friend actually, uh, Afro American. Actually, he's African, but uh, I guess he's a let's say he's from Africa who became a U.S. citizen which I think can be different than what we traditionally think of as an Afro-American who's been here for generations. But regardless, it's fascinating to me because he tells me stories about how he's been repeatedly pulled over. And, you know, he drives a Mercedes, right? So he he tells to me, it's like, uh, my crime is black man driving Mercedes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so there's this increased sensitivity that a subset of people, and whether they're black, brown, whatever color they are, compared to the in-power observer, you can create a system where you have a baseline suspicion of everybody.
1: Yeah. Uh, sorry, who has a suspicion of who? I mean- uh, Like the- a police officer, a white police officer, uh, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I simply throw that out, not to veer off at this topic in that direction. But I think it's very similar because, again, like this woman made some assumptions based on her, if you want to call them false memories, I think individuals can create narratives that support their inherent biases. Oh, sure. I mean, that's all
1: we ever have. But, but, you know, I mean, in theory, it could happen the other way, too, which is – sure. Right, because all we ever have is a limited sampling of the world. So if I meet three Cambodians in my lifetime and I happen to think they're all terrific, then I'm going to have a bias thinking that Cambodians are all terrific, which of course they're not. Cambodians are exactly like any other group, which is to say you have scholars and you have psychopaths and you have schizophrenics and you have synesthetes and you have, you know whatever so it's yeah but but all I have ever sampled in my life is three Cambodians and so um, that's all I have to work with yeah well
0: and I, I again I think this is in some ways the nature of who we are as humans are constant reconstructions that we feel become more and more accurate as perhaps we get more experience.
1: Ah, well, that's interesting. That's interesting about we feel it becomes more accurate because maybe as I live, you know, several more decades, I'll meet six more Cambodians. And so I'll think, wow, my, my estimate is really accurate now. But of course, it never can be unless I meet you know five million Cambodians and sit down with each one of them and really get to know them and their lives and how they behave. So I, I agree with you that we probably all believe our estimates get more accurate. And by the way, I think we all think that our estimates are accurate anyway. Even when we're 18 years old, we think, boy, I, I know the world. <laughs> I get this better than anybody. And this is actually what my next book is about. I'm writing this book called Empire of the Invisible. I've been working on this for a while. And it's about the way that we see so little of necessity. And the sampling issue is just one piece of it. But we see so little of what's going on. And yet we have this certainty all the time that we understand the whole picture. And this is why everybody feels, you know, if I can just yell loudly enough on Twitter, in all caps, I could convince everybody that my opinion is right. Essentially, everybody on all sides of the political spectrum feels fundamentally that if they could just, you know, talk to their brother or their sister or their whoever or their neighbor, that if that person would just listen, you could convince them that you are right and they are wrong. And this is a, I'm just, I'm fascinated by this illusion that we all live with. And that's what I'm writing about.
0: Well, you know, that's interesting because part of the problem is your certainty about your opinion versus, uh, what's the term you use, possibilinian?
1: Uh, uh, Possibilianism, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's funny actually you bring that up. I think one has to be a possibilian to even come to this realization that maybe there are just lots of different points of view on this that are all – you know, they're all okay. I mean, when you're a young person, you're pretty certain that your opinion is the only correct one. And, you know, boy, if you could just, if those dumb adults would just listen to you, you could let them know. So anyway, I've just, I, I, you know, watching the increasing polarization uh, over the last several years, I've just felt more and more the importance of writing this. I just gave a talk on this where I put together an hour of slides on it and delivered this. And I was so pleased at how, how well this was taken up by the audience, because when I first told the people who invited me, I said, I'm going, to, I'm going to speak on the neuroscience of our political opinions. They said, great, can you, you know, are you going to tell me how I can convince my brother that he's wrong and I'm right? And I said, no, I said, I'm not going to talk about that, but I'm going to sort of talk about the meta issue there, which is why you believe that there's some thing that I could tell you or anyone could tell you that would allow you to convince your brother that you are right.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because I don't know if you ever saw it. There was a Heineken commercial where they brought together a group of uh, disparate opinions in different ages. And then they had them, I think, work on a project for three or four days together. And what happened is, you know, initially it started out with, uh, you know, sort of people making assumptions about the other people and then different people commenting about political uh, opinions. But by the end of this, whatever it was, two, three, four days, whatever, people were sitting down and just talking. And this is, uh, you know, in some ways this relates to uh, an area of interest I have, which is sort of compassion in the sense of seeing the other's perspective and respecting their opinion and giving them dignity without depersonalizing them or objectifying them, which, of course, makes it easier to judge them.
1: Yeah, yeah, nice. Tell me how you're thinking about what what the solutions are for that. Kill everyone
0: who has a different opinion than <laughs> mine. <laughs>
1: uh, right.
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, that is the challenge. I, I think that what we have to do is have humility about our positions, and then also try to be empathetic and try to understand what are the drivers of the other people's opinion. And then, uh, you know, respect their opinion, respect who they are. And then this allows you to have a conversation about how you arrived at that. And in some ways, its uh, I would say it's this choosing love over fear, right? Because oftentimes the drivers of people's very uh, adamant opinions is uh, a fear about the other or the other's opinion. And when you're able to dissipate that and simply look at it as trying to understand the other person without judgment— then I think you're open to have a conversation where one or the other might change their minds.
1: Yeah, this is a really important thing. And by the way, you know, I get asked a lot about this um, recently about the the influence of social media on driving polarization. And by the way, I just want to mention that I, I think social media has very little to do with this. You know, obviously it's a tool that people use to scream and shout their opinions, but when when you really look at awful scenarios of deep polarization that led to serious bloodshed you know all the examples i know are in the 20th century from uh, you know communist chinese revolution to the russian revolution to nazi germany to the hutu and the tutsi in rwanda and so on this is all pre-social media man you don't need that for people to get completely polarized and completely up in arms and, and killing each other
0: well, you know, what I would say to that is, though, that those are all examples of people who are kept from having complete information, right? I mean, the worst thing for a despot is to have complete transparency. Uh, because And, and in, in some ways, it's like traveling the world. You know, if you come from a small town in Arkansas, which is very rural and, you uh, Uh, let's say, uh, Christian and it's not diverse in whatever way, it's easy to then come to the conclusion based on perhaps those around you without knowledge of a certain perspective versus if you've traveled the world, you've seen all different types of individuals, behaviors, cultures, and you realize that, I don't know if the word is nothing is written in stone, but you're certainly more able to look at different perspectives of how to behave in the world, I think that gives you some insights and you're not quite as judgmental.
1: Yeah, quite right. And it may be, therefore, that the internet gives you the equivalent of world travel. If you're stuck in Arkansas, you can can essentially be traveling the world and seeing things that you would never have the chance to do just by being on YouTube and TikTok and whatever and meeting people elsewhere and making connections on Zoom with people elsewhere. That's pretty cool. And by the way, the, the, it's not about restriction of information. If you look at just an example, like the 1933 election in the, the German Reichstag, the parliament, every single candidate elected that year was either communist party or Nazi party, far left or far right. And it's not because there was restriction of information as such by a despot. It was that... You know the communist. Just there was it was just polarization. It was just good old fashioned super polarization. And what happened, of course, is the German president then died, and Hitler took over. He grabbed power as the Führer. Well,
0: correct. But once that event happened, then there was a narrative pushed that uh, created a version of history, which negatively presented the Jewish perspective or Jewish people, right?
1: Yeah, quite right. Once there's a despot, then it's easy. You get censorship, all sorts of. Thing. You know, under Lenin and Stalin, there was unbelievable censorship. With, you know, even the even the weather reports were doctored. If it was a day of celebration for the Soviet Union, and it looked well, like sunny. the weather wasn't going to be, yeah, exactly, <laughs> sunny, exactly. And so this is again something I feel that is incredible about the internet, and really a benefit to us is that uh, that kind of censorship is totally impossible now. Now that we have multiple voices,
0: well, you know, it reminded me what you were saying. Of um, remember Romania when it was communist, run by Ceausescu. Ceausescu, yeah, Ceausescu. Yeah, he, he 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 stated that he had invented peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. Well, I imp- invented peanut butter, damn it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I would say though. Uh, I agree with you in the context of there is the possibility of learning a diverse worldview if you so choose. And the reason I say this is there was a recent study where they they took some individuals who only watch Fox News, as an example, which, of course, are primarily hard-right conservatives— and then stop them from watching it for a period of time and expose them to other, perhaps not quite as right-wing news sources. And it was like, you know, suddenly uh, they saw the world from a, a completely different perspective and were much less judgmental. So I think it's how one chooses to get access to information. You can either choose to have limited access or, you know, complete access, if you will.
1: Well, exactly. This is, Again, this is what I think is so great about the internet is you can't help but, I mean, you might choose to watch one station. You might choose to listen only to NPR, but you at least have the option to listen to a spectrum of things and, and hear the hear the news broadly, whereas, whereas historically you didn't have that.
0: Yeah, you know, what I was going to say is, you know, my wife, of course, Masha, she... Uh, she buys organic, right? Yeah. And there, she was talking about chickens <laughs> and how they're grown organically. And so uh, I researched this this farm, and it says the chickens have access to a yard, but there's like a two-foot-by-two-foot two window or door with 50,000 chickens, <laughs> and oh. none of them have ever been outside, but they have the ability to go outside. Oh,
1: it's terrible. Uh,
0: so so in some ways you could say, well, yes, they have the ability to choose, but sometimes practically that's not quite the case.
1: I know. This is funny. Anytime you put some sort of binary labeling practice on something like, oh, you can call it organic if, then you get everybody <laughs> suddenly calling it organic. Yes, but it, yes. it loses uh, its meaning, yeah. Uh,
0: speaking of... <laughs> Uh, let's change the subject. How about consciousness? You know, uh, uh, there are last count at least 10 or 12 uh, different views of consciousness, going from uh, what's his name, Penrose, all the way to Chalmers, all the way, is it to Tony? Tononi, yeah. Tononi, yes. Uh, uh, so, who do you agree with, not, or do you have your own perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I have a possibility in perspective on this, which <laughs> is. <laughs> Of course you do. (laughs) Yeah, it's that, I mean, but the only reason is, is because we don't know. I mean, we don't have a killer theory that says, look, here's how you take a bunch of pieces and parts. You know, you've got these neurons, these chemicals released and so on. And then there is the taste of feta cheese or the smell of cinnamon or the beauty of a sunset or the pain of pain. Like we just, we don't have any theory that can even claim to say, oh, yeah, I've got that nailed. Here's how you do it. And that's because our language in science of, you know, okay, take a triple integral, carry the two blah, 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 like that, it just doesn't translate over to that realm of, okay, that's why that hurts, or that's why that smells a particular way. So what we have are a bunch of cool theories, and they sort of, you know, like, let's say, Tononi's integrated information theory. It's cool, and it sort of feels like, ah, yeah, I can see how the shape of this matches the shape of consciousness but it certainly can't claim to be a direct, you know, oh, I got it, there it is, that's why it feels that way. And so that's just this very mysterious position where and I actually I wrote an article in Discover magazine in 2004 called 10 unsolved questions of neuroscience. And we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of this and most of the questions are still just <laughs> as unsolved as they were. Uh, back then, which is quite surprising, but anyway, one of the uh, sort of the main question was what is consciousness? How do you take physical pieces and parts and put them together and get something out of it? So, yeah, I'm. I think it, the reason I say I'm a possibility on that is because I think it would be silly to say I'm going to stake my ground on this position and say that these positions are incorrect. For example, Penrose's position gets criticized a lot because so he says look, it probably involves quantum mechanics. Now, why does he say that? Because essentially, you know, Mother Nature figured out quantum mechanics a long time ago. And so there's no reason biology wouldn't take advantage of quantum mechanics, except, the critics say, you know, at body temperature, maybe things... um, You know, maybe you can't really get these things like entangled particles so easily at these temperatures, and it goes back and forth. But, you know, just a few years ago, there was a paper in Nature discovering that photosynthesis in plants, this very ancient basic mechanism, is in fact a quantum property. And so, So, okay, the point is, so is it impossible that conscience has something to do with quantum mechanics? No, not impossible. But a lot of people will take a very firm position and say, oh, that's stupid. It can't be that, which always seems to be very funny to to pretend like we know more than we do in terms of ruling things out.
0: Well, again, I, I think you could even throw this back into the realm of religion. Humans have this need to handle uncertainty, and they create narratives to explain things. And whether you want to go back to, you know, primitive man or even this topic, you know, we're always searching for an explanation, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, as Descartes said, uncertainty is an uncomfortable position, but certainty is an absurd one. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> that sounds like Camus. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean
1: <laughs> existentialism from Descartes. Uh, well, but the, but but the point. It, it, in fact, it wasn't quite existentialism. It was just saying like there's really. No, I know. Yeah, it's so goofy to say to say. Oh, I know for sure. It's like, so the people who piss on, for example, the Penrose Hammer-Off version of consciousness, they say, well, look quantum mechanics is mysterious, and consciousness is mysterious, so maybe they're the same thing, ha, ha, ha. And that's how they make fun of this. But it doesn't actually rule in or out. They could be totally unrelated. They could be totally related. We just don't know. Yeah.
0: Well, I, Well, maybe one of the queries I can throw at you, which I don't understand, and I'd be interested in your opinion, is sort of the question of who is you. And what I mean by that is... We have, let's say we have you or I, and we're in a car accident, and our brains are severely damaged, and uh, we're effectively a vegetable. Uh, So is the old you still there, or is the present you now? quote-unquote, uh, the nature of consciousness. And, and do you understand what I'm saying? Yep. I mean, yep. w- w- where, where do you go with this? As an example, if a child is born anencephalic, and let's say the child can survive, then was there a real personality there that was distorted by the effects of genetics or birth or whatever the trauma was that affected this change? Or did it start out as severely limited intellectual capacity.
1: Yeah. I guess I'd say the the only view that would make sense in the context of modern neuroscience is just that you are your brain. And so, for example, starting with the first example, if you are in a severe car accident and you lose a chunk of brain tissue, the vast jungle of the brain with its networks and its tangles is now a different brain. And so your consciousness is different. Who you are is different. Uh, in the same way that if I, you know, ripped a chunk out of my cell phone, um, it would be different, and its capacities would be different, and so on. And if I said, okay, but does the does the original Android phone still exist somehow somewhere? The answer is not really. It's kind of you know, it can't it can't do this anymore, and this half of the screen doesn't work anymore. So. Um,
0: uh, but doesn't that take sort of reductionist or a materialistic perspective?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, but the reason I said this, to me, the reason this seems like, this seems like the main answer of modern what we know is, is simply that, and, and you, of course would know this better than anybody, seeing things every day where someone gets a tumor or a stroke or a traumatic brain injury, and who they are changes. And so it certainly seems that we are completely dependent on the stuff upstairs, the three pounds of stuff, and you know, in in a way that we're not dependent on other stuff in our bodies, like you can get a heart transplant, get a completely mechanical heart in there, and you're really no different as a person, but boy, you damage just a little chunk of your brain, and your decision-making is different, your risk aversion, your ability to recognize animals or see colors or understand music or a hundred other things are all changed by that. And that's why seeing enough of these cases certainly feels like, okay, well, I guess we who you are is certainly dependent on the integrity of that tissue. Well,
0: you know, but this is the thing. It's like, you know, of course, I'm sure you know the example of Phineas uh, Gage, right? Yep, yep. And, and, you know, who, uh, (laughs) which is which? And And again, I'm not just saying this rhetorically, but if you're talking about a consciousness that is outside of the brain, how does the brain destroy that and does it ever regroup? And and maybe this gets to be spiritual, philosophical, whatever.
1: Yeah, I think it's... But I think it's in the realm of the spiritual, philosophical, whatever. Here's the thing, by the way, for any listeners that don't know, Phineas Gage was a, a young railroad worker. Long story, but there was an explosion and his tamping rod, which was this big metal rod, ended up blowing through his head and clattered to the ground 50 yards away. And the reason it became a very famous medical case is because he didn't even lose consciousness. And the first doctor who showed up on the scene didn't even believe what people were saying had just happened until Phineas... Coughed and a little teaspoon full of brain fell out on the dust. <laughs> and but the reason he became really really famous is because he survived and and um he was a completely different person, like essentially immediately you know, after all the swelling that went down and everything, he was just a different human. And everyone said, you know, Gage is no longer Gage, was one of the quotations uh, that came from that time. And he'd gone from being a very nice young man that everyone liked to being uh, you know, drinking and cussing and sleeping with prostitutes and gambling and just totally different person. And and I think that's one of the first cases in the literature where people could look at it and say, "Wow, well, I guess I guess you are your brain. You are dependent on that. So the question of is there some other Phineas Gage that exists? You know, the the previous version of it exists. I kind of don't. I don't think so. Well, so so then this gets to the
0: question though. You know, if you die who is left? Uh, Is it Phineas Gage post-entry or is it Phineas Gage pre-entry? And this is to maybe uh, address the issue of people who either believe in an afterlife or karma, et cetera, et
1: cetera. Yeah. I mean, most most philosophers and scientists have landed on the opinion, not that there's any, you know, not that we have a, not that anyone can have a clear answer to this, but it certainly seems that you know, Phineas Gage might have several changes in life, like if later in life he'd ended up with a brain tumor and then, uh, you know, had a, a traumatic brain injury after that. And so, yeah, you know, he could change many times. And when he dies, all the activity in the brain stops and there's no more Phineas Gage at all would be the, c- certainly the view of modern science, at least in the absence of any reason to believe something else.
0: Uh, well, I would agree with you on that, and, which comes back to the reductionist materialistic perspective, I suppose. Well, now let's get to near-death
1: experience. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, Give me your thoughts. So it's so easy for the brain to slip into hallucinogenic or dreamlike states in various circumstances. So it's very difficult to know when someone says, hey, I was dying on the operating table and I experienced XYZ. You know, how do you distinguish that from a dream of some sort? You know, I heard of one story of a neurosurgeon who had, who put some big blinky light sign that said some word. He put it on the shelf above uh, everybody, so that yeah, so that if somebody said, "Hey, I, I floated above and I watched what was going on," the surgeon could say, "Okay, great. What was what was the big sign that was blinking?" And obviously, no one was able to report that word, suggesting that no one was actually floating above the room. So, I don't know. I mean, some of these things are so hard to test or know, but I certainly don't think there's a good reason to believe in them. Because, you know, this is the question that philosophers have asked for centuries, which is, is testimony evidence? If I come back and tell you that, you know, I was surrounded by pink elephants uh, on, on your operating table, is that evidence? Does it count as anything? Well, of course not. And that's that's the problem
0: with when you get testimonials telling you how great a product is, actually. But uh, <laughs> I used it, and it was the best thing in the world. Well, the reason I mention that is it's interesting, and uh, you may not recall, but in my book, you know, I was in a Sears car accident and actually had a near-death experience. And it was interesting because I had a spine fracture as well as abdominal trauma and a splenic fracture. And I was taken to the operating room Theoretically, and I had a transected small bowel, that was fixed. They saved the, the spleen, and then I was taken back to the ICU, and the chief of surgery had operated on me, actually. And what happened was my blood pressure was you know going from like 120 over 80 down to 100 over 60 down to 80 over 40 down to 60 over nothing. And it was interesting because the chief of surgery, and again, this uh, I recall this, right? He was arguing with the vice chairman of my department saying he could not possibly have missed a bleeder. And, you know, <laughs> my, my blood pressure is dropping down. <laughs> And and you know I obviously I was ventilating I had no other fractures and so there's only one source of this right so the vice chairman of my department says look you idiot if you don't take him back to the OR I'm taking him back and at that point I actually left my body and was observing this conversation or at least so it seemed And then uh, I was taken to the operating room, and then I did have this near-death experience, which is the classic one of going down a river of light, if you will, towards a bright light, knowing that I was going to be engulfed in that and I would be dead. And as I was going down this, of course, I felt the feelings of individuals who had passed, who were telling me they loved me, et cetera, et cetera. And as I got closer... I decided it wasn't my time, and the next thing I you know, I woke up in the ICU. And so my view was that I got this blast of light, if you will, because I was hypotensive, and it impacted my visual cortex. Mm. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and I think there's a discussion that's accepted that that's the case by some scientists. And But it's interesting because, of course, there are some people who believe that you know, they'll see Jesus or some version of a spiritual religious being, and they're calling for them. But again, you know, I think like so many things, the deep embedded memories you have come back to you. As an example, this is why you have these relatives talking to you or people who love you or you see a uh, Jesus or whatever.
1: Well, yeah, they're, great. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things to note there, which is that, you know, maybe... of the world sees Jesus, 40% of the world sees Allah, you know, the other 20% are seeing whoever, you know, uh, other characters from whatever their local customs and traditions are. And so that would be enough to tell us that there's not, a fundamental thing going on. There's certainly, you know, it's it's certainly just a uh, about what is in your warehouse of memories that's coming up. The other thing that I think is worth noting is that people have all kinds of experiences that are let's just summarize them as hallucinogenic or dreamlike when they're in these situations, and we talk about the ones that seem sort of meaningful or spiritual. But one of the things that I collected in all of my studies about what happens when people are in near death experiences or you know scary traumatic events is that most of the time these things are totally meaningless for example when i fell off the roof i was in 3rd grade and so i was thinking about Alice in Wonderland. I had complete calmness as I was falling to what would you know, likely be my death and I was thinking about how this must have been what it was like when Alice fell down the, the rabbit hole because that was my experience. But this uh, one, one testimonial that I remember reading about is a gentleman who was in a motorcycle accident and got thrown from his bike and as he was sliding along the asphalt at 40 miles an hour or sliding on the asphalt his head, his helmet was bouncing up and down <laughs> against the asphalt fault as he was going. And he composed a little ditty to the to the rhythm of that. <laughs> and, and again, it was characterized by total calmness and so on. But, um, you know, I guess what happens is we hear those stories and we think, oh, that's bizarre. And then we don't include those when we think about near-death experiences. But um, yeah, but we should.
0: Well, uh, now there's another interesting phenomenon, which I'd be interested in your opinion. As an example, you know, Alexander, my son, uh, you know, when he was three or four, he began saying he had a different name and he was recounting experiences uh, and saying, as an example, he chose our family, which is weird, right? Of course, yeah. seemingly so. And and there are these experiences where people, children appear to have had another life. And, you know, there have been a number of cases documented And then you know it sort of recircles back to death and who we are as humans and what what does that translate into, and you know this consciousness or whatever soul traveling to another place. What are your thoughts
1: on that? I gotta say, my opinion would be that it would be meaningless for if if, let's say you were to tell let's say you were to prove hey, wow, you actually used to be, you know, uh, Schmendrick Johnson, the uh, last generation, and then, you know, Schmageggie Smith, the generation before that, and so on. Because I have no memory of that, it, it, it's meaningless. It doesn't, uh, even if that turned out to be a fact, it wouldn't mean anything. And, and so for Alexander, you know, whatever he was saying, whatever he, let's imagine it was true that he actually was this other person. If he doesn't remember that now, then what does it, what does it mean? What does it matter? What does it mean?
0: Well, yeah, no, exactly. But it, 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 it sort of goes along with this whole query of, you know, how we process memories, how we hold memories, what are memories, and uh, their significance to, in fact, who we are, right? As you said, you know, when you die, neuroscience would support that there isn't anything afterwards. Yet, of course, this is contrary to probably what the majority of people believe. Oh, that's interesting.
1: I mean, the majority of people believe all all kinds. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yes, they do. (laughs) But but, I mean, this is really the job of science, right? Science is nothing but clear thinking and doing experiments and seeing what we can and can not rule out. Now, by the way, the reason I'm a possibility, and I know you know this, Jim, but I'll just say this for the record here, which is the reason I'm a possibility is because, you know, I've devoted my whole life to science and I really believe in the pursuit of science. And yet there's so many things that we just don't know that we don't, Um, that we can't answer with the tools of science, at least not yet. And so this is one of them. Let's say the question is, do we, is there something that continues after the brain shuts down? Well, you know, this is a great question, but we don't, we don't actually know the answer. Now that's not equivalent to saying, therefore, anyone gets to make up whatever shmageggy story they want and we'll, you know, we'll buy that story. But it is to say, Um, we should always have intellectual humility and say, okay, look, this is what we think is probably the case, but it doesn't mean that we know for sure that there's nothing else interesting going on in the universe.
0: No, I agree with you. Now, this does bring up an interesting point, though, because in terms of sort of a commentary on what is creating divisiveness in our society is, I think, that we have somehow taken individuals with significant expertise in a particular domain and made their commentary equivalent to a person with no education or background and saying that there's somehow equivalency in their arguments.
1: Yeah, that's right. And probably ever has that been the case that that happens. Now, part of it is defensible because some people are just smart and good thinkers. So would I want to know Benjamin Franklin's opinion on whatever? Yeah, sure. He was a super smart guy. Or Isaac Newton's opinion? Uh, Yeah, certain things, not others. But yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, anyone can get on Twitter and scream and shout about whatever they want, whether or not they're an expert in that. They've got a million followers based on the fact that they you know, look great in a bikini or they're great on some sports field, but that's different than being knowledgeable and a good thinker in other domains. Yeah, it's always a problem we have to deal with.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. Well, uh, we've spent a good bit of ch- time <laughs> having a far broad reaching discussion, which I think actually is quite interesting and uh, hopefully also entertaining. Any uh, thoughts uh, you might have, or maybe you could mention this new book you're working on, and also maybe leave individuals with uh, an insight or a thought you may have. And I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to speak about. Neosensory, <laughs> but maybe you can suggest where people might find some information about that yeah. as
1: well. Yeah, okay, I'll do those in reverse order. So Neo-sensory, this is a company that I spun out of my lab years ago, and we build hardware as a brain-machine interface, non-invasively. So this is a wristband with vibratory motors on it, and we can translate any kind of information into patterns of vibration on the skin. So our first, our first device that we came out with was for people who are deaf... We translate sound into patterns on the skin. We're doing essentially exactly what the inner ear is doing, the cochlea, and we're just transferring that to the skin. And it works great for people who are deaf. But what I'm really excited about is the product that we've just released, which is called the Clarify. It's using the same wristband, but this is for, as people get older, they lose their high frequency, their ability to hear just what's going on in the high frequency. So they can still hear vowels fine and lots of things. but some sounds called phonemes they get more difficult to hear like distinguishing a v from a b from a d or you know other sounds like s or th things like that become harder to hear and also by the way you know conversations from women and children become harder to understand than from men because because they have higher frequency voices so this is why people get hearing aids but you know, people hate wearing hearing aids for for various reasons of stigma. And so what we have done is the wristband is listening with its microphone in real time for just those sounds. And it buzzes to tell you, oh, I just heard a B. Oh, here's a different buzz. I just heard a TH. Oh, I just heard an F and so on. And what happens is within about three weeks, your brain is able to Put these signals together from your ear, which is hearing the low and medium frequencies just fine, and your wrist, which is clarifying the high frequencies. And people say this is like a pair of eyeglasses for their for their wrist. And so I think this is I think this is a really big deal. This is going to totally revolutionize hearing aids and that whole market because it means that people can just put on this little wristband and uh, and. And here, actually, the scores that we're getting are actually better than hearing aids. And so anyway, that's that's the newest thing I'm doing, and that takes up 90% of my time, so I'm very excited about that.
0: Yeah, well, I would say that that's, you know, uh, I mean, actually quite profound, and in, in, in some ways, this is uh, a huge, huge testament to the power of neuroplasticity and the ability to train your brain with different sensory input, but that allows it to be utilized in very unique and different ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the brain is constantly changing its circuitry. You know, As you all know, you've got 86 billion neurons and hundreds of trillions of connections between them. And it, what it's doing all the time is reconfiguring those connections And what I argued in my last book, Live Wired, is that essentially it is infotropic, which means it is constantly reaching towards where it can get the most relevant information in the world. Because remember, the brain is locked in silence and darkness. It doesn't see or hear or smell any of this. All it can do is say, "Okay, look, I've got these spikes coming up these cables. What should I pay attention to? And so it figures out what is relevant for it. And so in this case, with hearing, it says, whoa, I get it. I can actually understand what, the, what this phoneme was if I just pay attention to what's going on in my wrist and just put those together and bada bing. So, I'm, yeah, I'm very excited about this. This is, this is what I'm calling sensory cross-boosting where you're taking, you know, what's going on in your ear and what's going on on the skin of your wrist and boosting what's, you know, your, your, the, the probability distribution that your brain makes about what sound was just said out there
0: I like your continued word creation here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I think I'll keep that up till the day I have my dear death experience. Yes. So, Yeah. So the next book I mentioned is Empire of the Invisible. It's going to take me another year and a half or two years to finish it because it's a biggie. But it's really, you know, my whole career I've been doing things in neuroscience specific things. My last book, as I mentioned, was all about neuroplasticity. But... It is hard to avoid in this political climate thinking a lot about this issue of, okay, you know, how as a neuroscientist do I see what is going on in the world of politics? And again, it's not I'm not arguing for any particular position. What I'm doing is taking the meta position of what is the reason that people feel, you know, all of us feel such certainty about how right we are, given as we you and I already mentioned, you know, this limited sampling and. But whatever. We j- I, I, just, I find this so fascinating. And you may know I've done a bunch of work about empathy uh, in, you know, in the brain scanner about in-groups and out-groups and how readily we form these. And we say, OK, well, that, is, that person's a part of my in-group. So I, my brain cares about what happens to that person, whereas that person is a member of my out-group. So I really don't care. They can get hurt and it doesn't really cause much of a signal in my brain.
0: Of course, though, what we do know, though, is if you can create narratives that allow the person to see that they're aspects of the other like themselves, it can actually decrease the outgroup aspect in the sense that they potentially are more accepting or more empathic, if you will. And this is the work of David Destino and
1: others. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. And you may know, well, just for the Listeners, I'll just mention very briefly, you know, one of the main experiments we did is we put people in the scanner, you see six hands on the screen, and the computer goes around and picks one of the hands, and then you see that hand gets stabbed with a syringe needle, and that activates what's called the pain matrix, this network of areas in your brain that essentially, you know, feels pain but of course the weird part is it's not your hand getting stabbed you're watching someone else's hand so that's the you know that's the neural basis of empathy or feeling their pain or stimulating their pain but now here's the thing we add a one word label to each of these hands, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, Scientologist, Hindu. And now the computer goes around, randomly picks a hand, you see the hand get stabbed. And the question is, does your brain care as much if it's a member of your outgroup? And we measure people in all different groups, you know, where they, they belong to one of the groups and all the, the other five were their outgroups. Um, And everybody feels that, which is to say, you know, when their in-group gets stabbed, they care a lot. When their out-groups get stabbed, they just don't care so much. And by the way, this is just as true of atheists. So it's not like this is an indictment against religion. It's just in-group, out-group, human stuff that we do. But here's the thing. It's very flexible. So... What we did in the next version of the experiment was we said, okay, the year is 2025, and now these three religions are teamed up against these three religions. And, of course, the computer arbitrarily divides which three go with which three. But now... You care about your in-group, but your brain also has a bigger response to your two allies, to these two groups that a moment ago you didn't give a shit about. And now when you see them get stabbed, your brain has a bigger response because they're your allies. They're part of your team against the other team. And of course, we see this all the time, historically. I mean, uh, you know, look at what happened with the, after the Russian Revolution, um, you know, we hated the Soviets, then the Axis powers, you know, started World War II, and we were teamed up with the Soviets. And so then American and Soviet soldiers loved each other and, you know, clapped each other on the back and shared cigarettes and had a great time together. And then as soon as the war was over, they became enemies again. But, But the point is, people can very flexibly include or exclude others.
0: Well, uh, in fact, uh, this goes all the way back uh, to that experiment with the blue-eyed and brown-eyed children, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, although that experiment wasn't about the flexibility, that was just how easy it is to make an in, to make outgroups. But but the thing the thing I'm pointing to is how easy it is once you have an outgroup to say, "Oh, actually, you know what? Uh, you know, we've got something in common. There's something in common that we have." This is to your point, which I fully agree with, which is the importance of saying, hey, you know that guy over there at the political rally that you disagree with? Fine, but you know what? He loves pictures of Montana the way you do. He loves, you know, Pomeranian puppies the way you do, and so on, and, and figuring out what people have in common rather than what they have uh, that sets them apart.
0: Well, when I talk about the brown-eyed and the blue-eyed, yeah, I, I mean, I think, though, that at the end of it, I think they said it, it wasn't true, right?
1: That's right. I mean, they, the, the genius of the experiment was that the, the woman running it flipped it. So what, what, you know, so the next day it was the kids with the other eyes that were on top and the other eyes that were on bottom. So that was just to show how arbitrary power structures can be, but they didn't do a thing of saying, okay, you know what, actually this brown-eyed kid, and this blue-eyed kid, they both have whatever, red hair. And so they're going to be on a team together and so on. Just showing the flexibility of it to my mind is a really important piece of the, Yeah.
0: No, I think uh, I think that's uh, exactly right, and and again, in some ways, it gets back to our unconscious biases, and this I think is why it's very important that we look at the nature of bias and remind ourselves how easily uh, we can be either manipulated by ourselves or potentially by others.
1: That's right. And actually, the one thing I will mention, in case someone's interested, I wrote an article in The Economist called, Does Your Brain Care About Other People? It Depends. And so it's all about these things of the, the biases we have and, um, you know, when we care about other people, when we consider other people part of our in-group and not, and, and ways that we might uh, address that and help that.
0: David, could you uh, tell people your website, because it's quite extensive, and I think uh, for many of our curious listeners, they would love to uh, learn more about you. Great.
1: It's it's EagleMan.com, my last name, EagleMan.com.
0: I like the way you did it, Eagle Man. I always say eagleman, but perhaps it's, <laughs> it's actually Eagle, Man. Eagle. <laughs> <laughs> However,
1: you want to do it. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well,
0: David, uh, listen, it's been a, a wonderful pleasure. I think we uh, did a, a full exploration of a whole variety of deep topics and at least given a little bit of insight into them. And I hope it uh, allows for a bit of reflection on the part of our listeners. So thanks again. I really appreciate
1: it. Great. Thank you, Jim. It's great to talk with you.
0: As usual. And hopefully, we'll get together soon. Awesome. Can't wait. again thank you for being with us today the into the magic shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com